Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm. This is a Monday morning coffee episode. I am your host, Alex Gore. I'm here with Stephen King, the one and only not book writer, but growth force coach. He's the founder of Growth Growth Force, one of the nation's largest outsourced bookkeepings, accounting, controller services for companies and nonprofits that use QuickBooks. Growth Force specializes in helping uh, service business and nonprofits run better grow faster, and make more money leveraging a dedicated U.S.-based fractional share of accounting department. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to run better, grow faster? Welcome to Inside the Firm. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. So first, let's dive into your past a little bit. Um, Let's just start with how you learned and what is Enterprise Accounting System, and, and I believe you learned it at Ernst & Young. It started at Ernst & Young. Yeah, I was a manager of accounting system design back in the late 80s, which kind of shows you how old I am. And I learned how big Fortune 1000 companies needed to have fully integrated and automated back office systems that didn't just spit out data, but actually gave decision makers actionable financial intelligence so that they could pull the levers to increase their bottom lines. And so we've applied that methodology to architects and engineers. Awesome. Um, That's great. And I'm I'm sure you do more than just that, but you have a cohort of architecture and engineering clients? Yeah, we specialize it. And our whole business is an outsourced accounting department. So we do everything from the bookkeeper, as you mentioned, all the way up to the CFO. And it's dependent on what skill sets you've got in-house. So if you've got a great bookkeeper or an office manager that somebody's been there forever, we're going to wrap ourselves around that and make them more that person more valuable to the owner to teach them how to code the transaction so that you get the right data out, teach them how to read the reports and pay attention to which clients are, are not making the margins. So you are able to have actionable reports to look at your fingertips. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, you, What was your role in, uh, it, you'll have to uh, correct me, Insperity Financial Management Services? Well, I bought a company. I started a company called Virtual Growth in 1995 when Netscape 1.0 came out, the first commercial browser. And we became, we built the first outsourced accounting department on the web before they they even called it the web. And when after September 11th, our house of cards fell down. Our our lead investor was Citibank Venture Group. They shut down their venture group. And one of our board members and investors and my mentor was the CEO of Insperity, which is a a four or five billion dollar outsourced HR company, a PEO. And he had a vision that you need to integrate human resources, human capital management with financial management. So he said, if you move to Kingwood, Texas, I'll buy your company. And that's what I did. And I became president of that Insperity Financial Management. But a year after September 11th, the stock market crashed. Wall Street said you can't diversify into outsourced accounting. I got a chance to start it all over again and buy it back. 
And that's what I did for the, for, in 2004. Okay. So talk about that. It, it's like a curse and a, and a benefit of, of starting over, you know, it, it's devastating yet. It's an opportunity. <clears throat> so honestly, like what did you revamp in making that business? What did you learn? What did you cut? What did you add? What a great question, Alex. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. In fact, I took a year off to think about it. And the big, when I was in New York, building virtual growth, you know, we raised 43 million in venture capital funding and we were not trying to build a billion dollar business. And one point I looked around and I thought, oh my goodness, I started this company because I wanted to be a better father. I wanted to be engaged mm -hmm. as a parent. And now I'm on red eyes from LA and working all day Saturday to catch up from the emails I missed while traveling across our seven, we had offices in seven cities. And I turned around and thought, this is not why I started the company. And when I went to Insperity, Paul Savardi said, you New Yorkers, you live to work. I'm going to teach you how to work to live. And so when I got a chance to start Growth Force Up, I built it as a family first organization. And it has been the best decision I ever made in my life was moving to Kingwood, Texas and, and building a company where I learned how to work to live. So was that your anvil when you were rethinking, when you were pounding ideas across it was how does this relate to a family first? Yeah, I had a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Yeah. And, and, I got a seven and, and a four, so I, I know, know what five right? and two is too, yeah. Yeah, so you got you to gotta really make a conscious decision to say, okay, for me, my health came first, my family came second, and my job came third, and I'm going to work my butt off, but I might leave at three o'clock on Fridays to go coach, coach T-ball, or I'm going to go to the gym on Tuesday mornings and I'm going to start at 10. And you just, I learned working at Insperity how to, to build a profitable business, but understand where work fits into your life priorities. Do you, and this might be because you're the CEO of the company. Is that your title or is it a different title? CEO and founder, yep. Yep. So you might be a little bit removed from let's just say client acquisition, uh, talking with firms and stuff like that. I, about five years ago, had the realization that some architecture firms aren't really tracking their hours. So it's like, hey, we got this project and we're gonna use a metric that it is X the construction budget and the, you know, whatever percentage of the construction budget. And then we're gonna do the work. And I'm like, wow, that is really flying by some loose <laughs> stuff. Is that assumption still correct? Is it better? Are they, you know, like now a level deeper and you want to go deeper? Where's an, an engineer? You can just talk about the, the businesses yeah. that kind of come in. Yeah, I've been doing this for 35 years. So I, 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 I've seen this exactly what you're saying. And I think the answer is very simple. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you're happy with your profitability, if you've got that 20, you know, 25% net profit at the end of the year, you are living the American dream, then by all means, it's working. Stick with the course. But if you're if you're working really hard and you're just eking out, you know, less than 10% profit, which by the way is the majority of the books that I see, yep. then then Alex, what you said is dead on. You want to track your time not because you should be billing for your time. I don't believe in hourly billing. You should do value-based pricing, right? 100% value selling. But you need to track the time and allocate your, your, your biggest expense 
labor cost, on average, in an, an architect firm, 83% of the expenses are people. And you have to allocate that labor cost to each customer in each job to be able to see where have we priced it wrong? Where do we have inefficiencies? Where do I have training opportunities? Am I getting new employees up to full productivity fast enough? You need to see the true gross profit, the amount of profit you make on each job in order to make any kind of data-driven decisions. Yeah, I love that. Well, let's go into data-driven uh, decision-making, right? So you've observed, like you said, thousands of businesses. Uh, what are, do you have one, two, four key decisions every business owner should make on a path to prosperity? Yes, yes. In fact, I wrote a book called uh, How to Make Data-Driven Decisions. And there's five big decisions. Okay. Number one, and, and this doesn't wait, matter. Wait, I'm getting out my pen. Yeah, this is good, right? It doesn't matter what size company you are. Number one is where do you spend leadership time? Do you have what management monitors gets done? Gino Wickman wrote that in his book, Traction. I'm a big fan of EOS and Traction. And so the first thing you got to decide is where do you want to focus your energy? There's only so many hours, so many MIPS you can process in your brain. And so the first decision is where do you spend your time? Do you have a top line problem? Meaning you've got to grow revenue. And right now, architects are having record top line sales. Deltex uh, report to the nation in 2023 said there's 16 16 to 17% growth in top line revenue. That's usually not a problem for companies I'm seeing right now. Number two, and this is the most important decision in every single business, is pricing. Are you pricing your bids right? A small change in pricing has a profound impact on the bottom line. And what most people do is they do it from the cost up if I want to make 50% margin and it's going to cost me hundred grand, I got to bid this out at 200. I'm going to show you how that's the, the, the backwards way to do it. Number three is hiring and firing people as well as clients. Now, people are 82, 83% of your expenses. You got to fire fast and hire slow. If somebody fits your core values, hold on to them, train them, invest in them. But if they don't, Culture eats strategy for lunch. So you got to move those people out as quickly as you can. Clients as well. Not all clients are created equally. You've got to know which clients generate the most margins and which ones don't and use data to figure out, should I even bid on this next job? Number four is productivity. How do you increase the productivity of the people you've got? How do you align your human capital management strategy and your financial management strategy to, because it's people that drive profits. And then finally, sales and marketing. Everybody's spending money to acquire new customers. How do you maximize that return on investment? How do you measure that difficult, vague measurement of marketing dollars and what does it get you? I love those. Um, can you talk about, can you define what does culture mean for a business and how do they... How do they even grasp it? How do they even get a handle on it? How do they grow it? How do they shrink it? I love that you're talking about culture because to me, Peter Norton said, culture eats strategy for lunch, right? Well, culture, 
First off, you want to have a culture by design. Every organization has a culture. But for most organizations, unless you're intentional about who you want to be, you're going to have a culture that gets created. And basically, the simple way to look at culture is culture is the things that, if you don't follow it, gets you fired. What gets you fired in a company? Does lying get you fired? If, if not, then you can't have open honesty as a core value. Is accountability get you fired? If not, can't be a core value. And so what we did at Growth Force is we said, historically in the accounting industry, right? We do outsourced accounting. As a CPA, we typically had a client-focused core values. But after COVID hit and the age of resignation came, and all of a sudden, employees were saying, I want to work. I, want to, I have choice about where I want to work. We shifted to a people-first core values. To our number one priority, our number one measurement is employee retention because we spend so much money training our people and, and acquiring them that we want to keep people for 10, 15, 20 years. And so we shifted to a core value that was the acronym is SCALE, S-C-A-L-E. And this is starts with the founder and the leadership team. What are my beliefs and what are the leadership team's core beliefs? Number one, we are servant leaders. We're here to serve each other on the team. Anybody who holds onto information as power is not going to make it at Growth Force. We're here to teach. C is care frontation. Open, honest communications, especially around difficult issues, is our number one core value. So if we have to, bad news needs to travel fast. Three is accountability. Say what you do and then do what you say. Because we're only as good as our word to each other as a team and as well to the client. L is lifelong learning. I want people who come to Growth Force to build a career, not just do a job, who are passionate about using our management accounting to help our, our architects and engineers achieve their lifelong dreams. And then E is embrace diversity. I come from New York. I worked for Amnesty International. I was the chief financial officer for that nonprofit. It's a multi-national uh, organization. And so I wanted to make sure, I saw the value of having different perspectives and different backgrounds come together. And so our organization is really focused on helping us embrace other people's feedback. Does that answer your question? It does, it does. Um very much aligns with which how we're building a business, how I'm helping businesses grow and things like that. Have you uh, gotten to the place where it's necessary to have a backstop on some of these? Meaning, uh, if you follow anything about Jocko Willink, uh, he, Discipline Equals Freedom, he has a couple books out there, he's a Navy SEAL, and his main book was called Extreme Ownership. Well, he realized after that book, if he's a Navy SEAL, and a lot of army people like him, um, military people. If he calls something extreme ownership, a lot of these people are going to take extreme measures to it. Literally. So, <laughs> yep. So the second book, um, forgetting the title, you know, the people in the comments will probably know, uh, but it was about balance. And what I mean by that is, is, is that there's a dichotomy of leadership, and I think that was the name of the book. Uh, so when you say that people are your biggest metric now and you're judging that on long on longevity, is there a backstop of, oh, um, B, 
because you could cook the books and you could pat yourself on the back that you keep growing that number, but profit's going down, but productivity is going down, efficiency is going down. So, hey, we want to keep this person, but here's our expectations of what you should be producing. And if you don't hit that, then we have a red flag and we can't not address that through counseling, training, and possibly letting go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you're, you're touching on something that's near and dear to my heart. We created an AEC scorecard, which is, and it's the only scorecard out there, as far as I'm, I'm aware, where it basically measures the three most important people drivers and compares them on one page to the three most important financial metrics. So the people- Can you drive, lay them out? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Think about it. Think about it as two columns. Left-hand side is people. Right-hand side is company and three rows. The top row is your top line. So on the right-hand side is your company metric, is your gross revenue. And we do everything in a concept called trailing 12 months. It's the only way to see the true economic result because it's a two-year trend. And most of the architects and engineers that I've worked with, they don't have a, a, a CFO and a controller, an assistant controller, and a team of bookkeepers to make sure that the revenue is matched to the timing of when the people did the work so that you have a real true monthly PL. If If a job goes to the next month, the revenue is often when the billing gets sent out. If you have biweekly payroll, you have three payrolls twice a year. The numbers on a monthly basis get all skewed. The trailing 12 months eliminates those variances, eliminates the seasonality shows you the true economic results. So gross revenue on the right, and then net revenue per employee. Net yep. revenue, net revenue meaning your gross revenue minus the pass-throughs, the consultants, and the other you know, expenses that you're getting paid for, but you're not doing the work. You only make a little markup. What that net revenue per employee does, and it's basically your net revenue divided by the number of employees, it shows you, how well are you managing the productivity of your people? So you're not literally saying, Jane and John, you build out this. Jane is 120K. John is 110K. It is literally, you're getting a snapshot. You're dividing it as a team. As a team, this is our net revenue per employee. Yeah, you can go down to individuals if your billing is done by individuals, but I don't see that usually happening. So yes, by team, but it gives you a picture of how productive are the people. Uh, we got 80% of our expenses on people. What's the return on that investment? Then you compare that top line revenue metric to your middle line, which is on the right-hand side under company, gross profit. Gross profit percentage is the single most important number every business needs to look at by far. Yeah. You're singing to the choir. Why? Because gross profit creates net profit. And most employees can't do anything about sales or overhead. Those are pretty much out of their control. But what they can do is they can find ways to be more efficient. They can find ways to supply, to, to use subcontractors that are cheaper. They can find ways to identify out of scope work I call it time leakage that you're paying for, but you're not getting paid for. And so by looking at the gross profit percentage over two years can tell you 
Are you directionally getting better as a company or getting worse? That's on the right-hand side in the middle row. On the left-hand side is labor cost per employee. Yep. Now, if you can visualize this, you got revenue per employee on the front row, top row and labor costs on the next row side by side. You can see what is the number one issue facing architects in America right now, 2023, is labor costs have risen 19% in the last two and a half years. And then are you including medical uh, benefits, all that? Because, I mean, it's part of labor. Fully loaded. You have to include the fully loaded labor costs. The health then, insurance. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, and then you could add on to that if you wanted to. Then could you define gross profit versus net profit? Yeah, gross profit is your highest level of profit. It's your revenue minus the direct expenses that the customer directly paid for, for the work that you did. Meaning it's the direct labor, the labor that the employees do that are money makers, that the client is paying for. And if you don't have your labor costs separated above the line, the line is gross profit. When you hear the word above the line, it means what are the costs of providing your service? What's the cost of goods sold? There's only two parts. There's direct labor, the labor the customer is paying for, and direct materials, the stuff you have to buy in order to earn the income. And what I see a lot of is uh, gross profits that are artificially inflated. The partner's salaries are down below in management. They're down in overhead. But most partners are money makers. And so if you don't put those costs above the line, you're thinking, I'm making 70% margins, baby. And the reality is, you're at 45% margins and it changed and you're wondering why you're not making any money. Yep. Okay. And then net is below the line, which would the be the last row of our chart is your net income on the right-hand side, which is the bottom line and your gross profit versus your net profit. The difference between that gross profit minus your overhead expenses, which is your indirect expenses. That's not what the customer was directly paying for. It's rent, it's supplies, it's lawyers, accountants, IT, HR. All that necessary cost to run the company, you subtract your gross profit from your overhead and that gives you your net profit. And on the right-hand side, we look at net income or net profit over two years as a trailing 12-month trend. And the secret to the AEC scorecard is the net labor multiplier. You're, if you're an architect firm and you're not, your CPA is not giving you your net labor multiplier, you're missing the most important driver of profits. Dell Tech's report, which I highly recommend people look at every year they come out, they showed the single biggest KPI that correlated between the profitable leading companies and the unprofitable one is net labor multiplier. And what that is, is it's your direct labor. Sorry, it's your, it's your direct labor divided by your net income. And it shows you, you should have a 3.2 or greater multiplier. Yep. So if you got a million dollars of labor costs, you should have $300,000 of profits plus three of revenue of, of, of a million dollars in labor, 3 million in revenue, 3 million in revenue. Sorry. Yep. Thank you. Net revenue. Yep. Right. And that, and, that, and that is the difference between having data that you can take action on 
and then just looking at a balance sheet or an income statement that doesn't tell you anything. Yeah, I agree. Um, so the, like you said, I think you summed it up great with your five points. And it's hard to argue which one is more important because they all kind of have cascading effects on each other. But let's go to one of the biggest and the hardest ones, which is solving the pricing problem. Yes. How do you think about that? And what is your advice for correcting, uh, you know, mispricing? Yeah. So, so this is, this is, if you have cash flow problems, it means you didn't get pricing right. It doesn't have anything to do with your billing and your collections. It doesn't have anything to do with what the amount of your expenses are. You have to price your jobs so that your gross profit covers its share of the overhead. And each job has to absorb a percentage of overhead in order for you to make money. And then have some extra for whatever your target profits are. Most people, like I mentioned earlier, they start with pricing with, with cost first. So they look and say, all right, if I want to make $100,000, if I want to make 50% profit, and I want to make, uh, and this costs me $100,000 to, to do, I've got to price this at $150,000. Well, that is assumes that, number one, you have all your costs figured out exactly right. And that is not usually what I see. Number two, it assumes that you're looking at an industry standard that applies to your business, meaning 50% margin may be good for one business, but for another, they may say, no, I want 60% margins. I've got one architect that we're working with where the pot, the partners are, they're, the older partners are like, we don't really care about profits. What I care about is happiness. 45% gets me happiness. I'm already made enough money in my career. Let's just keep the go keep it going. Where do you want how much money do you want to make needs to be the first decision you make when you do pricing? Because then if you say, okay, I'm gonna use round numbers, I'm a $10 million, uh, I'm gonna $10 million non uh, architect firm, and I wanna make 20% profit, that means I gotta make two million dollars at the end of the year. Well, now what you do is we, we, we do this things, this methodology where we say start, uh, it's first with first start with profit. So if you got $2 million of target, then the second step is how many available hours do you have at your fingertips that you, your employees can make money this year? So for example, I have uh, a client that had let me just see. I think actually I have it pretty close here on my my thinking. Uh, I have a client that said, "All right, we want to we want to make uh, we're making a half a million dollars profit right now. We have a hundred thousand hours available for us for over the course of a year. They have about forty employees, so it's a big firm. Um, but you just take you know each employee times there's two thousand hours a year, right? Twenty eighty. Yep." But they're not all available to you to make money. 25% of the time is going to be spent on two weeks vacation, holidays, sick time, meetings, travel, training, stuff that you have to do. So you don't have 2,000 hours per employee to make money on. You've only got 75% of that. 
And so when you look at that, if you have, instead of 2000 hours, I'm gonna use the math, make it easier. Let's say 80%, that means you have 1600 hours you can make money. Well, divide 1600 hours into uh, $2 million. Sorry, I, I messed up. These guys had 60 employees. Yes. So they added up 100,000 hours a year. They sure. want to make $2 million of profit. They need to make $20 in profit every hour. Yep. They have $3 million in overhead. That means they've got to cover $30 an hour in overhead. Yep. And then you can figure out how much you need to price your jobs. So how do you think about pricing? Yeah. And how do you advise people to think about pricing in the idea of getting profit? Right. So let's talk about how people do it now, which I think is the wrong way. And I've been advising clients for decades on this. I got a, I got a um, engineering company, Liberty Pipeline Services. Uh, Andy, uh, Weather, uh, Art Weatherford was the CEO. They're spinoff of a company called Enron. Anybody ever heard of it? <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, yeah. laughs> well, these guys, these guys were the smartest guys in the room. They had a real pipeline services business, right? And so, so they brought, came to us because they were they had cash flow problems. They were using a factor to pay payroll. It's like, okay, that's a problem, right? What's a, what's a factor? To pay? Factor is is basically a high interest loan. You know, they're oh. going to give you a loan, and then you know, you're gonna you're, your profits are going to stay elusive, in my personal opinion. So. We came in there and we said, okay, how are you doing pricing? He says, it's very simple. In our industry, you get 20% margins baked in. Whatever the price are, I get to add 20%. The first thing we noticed was he didn't have all his costs above the line. Like you said earlier, he did not have the fully loaded labor costs. He didn't have the health insurance, the taxes, the 401k contribution, the recruiting, the training, all that cost is another 25, 30%. Yeah, so he's already in the red. He's already five percent. Exactly. That's his difference. That's the difference between profit and loss. Yeah. Number two, he started with pricing based on costs, assuming that he had all those costs above the line, and assuming that twenty percent was going to get him where he needed to go. And what when you do cost plus pricing, you're not thinking about overhead. You're not thinking about your personal profit targets. You're just talking about, I need to get a 50% margin because that's the industry. And by the way, the architecture industry average is 62% for the market leaders. Most organizations aren't there, but that's what the industry leaders are getting. So what I suggest instead is of top down, looking at the costs and, and getting your income from there, I suggest you do bottom up. And I wrote a whole pricing guide on this. Which bottom-up means you start with profits. You start first with your profits. How much profit do you want to make? I've got this client in Denver, $10 million organization, good-sized firm, 60 employees. They're making a half a million dollars. But that's only 5% profit. They want a million dollars or a minimum of 10% profit. And that's where you should be. If you're below 10%, we got to talk because you're, you're not pricing right. Yep. And the so average happens, is 13%. And that's so close to 10% that I, I, you need to be shooting for 20. That's you need right. to be getting 20. And because and, and of what you do is valuable. 
and and there are limited hours in order to make money and you got to have it a feeling of abundance when you do your mind when, on the mindset but coming back to the math if you want to make a million dollars profit this company has 60 employees so the first thing they thought is okay well we can get 2000 hours 2080 hours out of our billable staff no you can't you can get 75% of their time is billable they got training vacations, holidays, meetings, travel, just stuff that it is. Yeah, man, that's their, their paid time off. Yeah. So I suggest people start in that 75% range. But for, for example purposes, I'll say 80% to keep it easy. That means they have 60 employees, 2,080 hours a year available, right? 40 hours times 52, but only 80% of them are going to be billable. That means each employee can give you 1,600 hours. 60 employees is 100,000 available hours a year, just to keep the example easy. If you want to make a million dollars, you divide it, your profit target, by the number of hours available to make money. And they need to make $10 an hour for every hour worked. Then you look at overhead and you work your way up the income statement from net income up to overhead. They have $3 million of overhead, 100,000 hours. They need to make enough gross profit to cover $30 an hour in overhead. So now you got $10 profit, $30 overhead. I got to make $40 every hour. Now you can look at your cost above the line cost, fully loaded and say, okay, if I need to make 40%, $40 an hour, I mean, how much do I need to bill? If my cost is 100, I need to bill 140. If my cost is 150, I need to bill 190. You start with profits first. I love it. I think it's a great way to think. Um, is there anything, so I'm a smaller firm. Yeah. And the way we think about it is that we look at all the expenses that go out each month and then have an average of that over the past uh 12 months and then because we're simplifying it for us and then add in 20% on top of, of that. And then that's what we're shooting for with monthly revenue. Well, the problem is what's your profit target percentage wise? No, 20, 20%. And, and, and yeah, exactly. So, so if you have, um, Let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars of overhead costs that you want each because you're what you're the thought process here is I need to divide the total overhead by the number of jobs I'm gonna do or the number of hours. And it doesn't no, no, matter. No, no, no. Oh yeah, total overhead. But, but I no no, but overhead including all expense. I mean all expenses. So all expenses. Profit. You mean the uh, the cost of goods sold and the overhead? And the overhead. We're gonna use easy numbers, is a hundred thousand. And and I mean like that's tax that that's every expense that ever goes out, ever. <clears throat> I want twenty percent profits on top of that. I am shooting for at a minimum one hundred twenty billion out that month. Right, that'll work. But I think what you're doing here is you got to understand how much my the direct cost above the line need to be separated from the overhead cost below the line because. The direct costs are variable and those fixed costs need to get covered over that course of the number of jobs you're going to do 
or the number of hours. And that will turn, then you'll have a variable overhead absorption and a cost of goods sold absorption. It just, it doesn't work if you, if you just look at all the costs. Yep. And, and well, also too, like we, you got to factor in what is, what is your cost and what's a pass through cost, meaning like, what are you paying the engineers that pass through? So like, you have to be a little bit nuanced about it um, for sure. Here's the good news, right? 90, and, and QuickBooks has 88% of the market because it's so powerful that you can do this just by setting up QuickBooks the right way. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're six employees or 60. If you set up the, the accounts and you, set, you memorize the reports, when you, run, when you run them, you have that data at your fingertips to be able to see how much do I have to make per hour in order to cover my overhead and generate a profit. Yep. Let's go to the flip side of this because it can happen. Uh, most of us have lived through recessions or know what the word means. What happens when, you know, I am a believer that leadership can uh, make you float on those troubled waters better. And there's things that you can do to set you up. But sometimes Fed shuts off the, the faucet, things dry up, people pause for a while. And you have to make a decision on who's not going to be there. Who's yeah. replaceable? Who's irreplaceable? Yeah. How do you think about that? This is my eighth recession. I've been to CPA for 37 years. And some people will, are, are, are in a recession right now. It's really industry by industry, but there's a lot of clients. I see a lot of businesses struggling right now. And so the way you do this, that's, uh, and I've got another uh, Weathering the Storm podcast on my website. Uh, first step is you got to have the right mindset. This is temporary, right? This is not forever. And you have to come to this from a mindset of abundance to know, okay, we are strong. We have a lot of value. We will get through this because we know what we have to do, what levers to pull. Second thing you got to figure out is how long do you think this will last? The, 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 the economists that I'm talking to, they expect in Q1 2024, the economy to pick up. It's going to get steam going into the elections. That's, that's what I've heard. There's others that say, you know, expect a bad Christmas and the worst is yet to come. So you've got to figure out how long of a runway have you got? Number three is how much cash do you have? And do you have any risks of not getting out on the other side? And let's assume you don't and you have to make cuts. Step four is you want to look at your overhead expenses first. Unless somebody doesn't fit the culture, then get rid of them right away. Use this as an excuse to move somebody who is, who is, who is uh, a danger to your effectiveness as a team. But assuming that you've got A players in the right seats on the right bus, you don't want to touch those direct labor costs, the people that are your money makers. You want to look first at all your below the line cost. Look at what can you outsource? What's not a core competency? Outsourcing saves about 25 to 30% on average than hiring one full-time person, especially in accounting when you can't find anybody and it's $125,000 for a good controller. And then the second thing is to look at sharpen the saw, right? So sorry, that's step four was what can you, what overhead costs can you cut? And look at outsourcing as a way to increase your profit margins by lowering that overhead costs. 
And then the last step is sharpen the saw. What does that mean? It means if you have people who have downtime, who are sitting on the beach, that you don't want to fire, and you have enough cash to get you through this recession, then take those, those people and have them, one, work on your internal processes. What can you do better? What can you streamline? What can you automate? And number two, train them. What additional, the, the ROI on training is one of the most underutilized measures. What If you teach them how to use new CAD software or how to be a better communicator with the clients or project management or time management or whatever the, the personal development they have, then when you come when we come out of this, you've kept all your good people, you've gotten them invested in trying to find streamlined ways to do everything, and they're working smarter, not harder. I love it. Great advice all around. I can't uh, overemphasize how much I've enjoyed this. Um, I, I feel like you echo the stuff that uh, we try to put out there too. So I'm glad that we're on on the same line and and and. Uh, same vision there. If anyone wants to reach out to you or learn more or connect, what's the best way to do it? And is there any other message that we missed that you think might be valuable that you want to get out there? Well, I think first I'm uh, uh, our website. If you're looking for um, resources that can help you make data-driven decisions, or if you'd like just like to start a conversation with me or our team about how your organization can get transformational change just by setting up the accounting system differently and having somebody to teach you how to read and interpret those results. Our website is growthforce.com, G-R-O-W-T-H force.com. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn at Stephen King CPA. That's Stephen with a P-H. Or just email me, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N at growth force.com in terms of you know to my mind you get one shot at life right this isn't a dress rehearsal and by being proactive and intentional about how you want to live your life being intentional about how much profit you want to earn being intentional about following the methodologies that are proven to be successful to get you that profit like all the market leaders do it, it'll transform everything. And, you know, what, what, what gets me excited is helping people achieve their, their dreams. And so, you know, most people, the finance and the accounting is a weakness. We created growth force to help turn it into a strength. That's awesome. I appreciate you, Stephen, for coming inside the firm and sharing your knowledge and we should have you back on uh, in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Alex.